If you're enjoying Cinema of Meaning, you can now support the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash cinema of meaning for more information about the rewards that you can get when you become a patron, including access to our Discord community where you can discuss episodes with other listeners and Tom and I. Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, a podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden, from the channel Like Stories of Old, that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week, we're talking about the Coen Brothers masterpiece, I'll go ahead and call it, No Country for Old Men. I guess I'm tipping my hand to what I think about this movie. This is one of my favorites from the Coen Brothers, I think. Tom... How do you feel about No Country for Old Men and, and what made you interested in, in discussing this one? Uh, yeah, I uh, pretty much agree with you. So it's going to be a nice conflict-free episode, <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> I saw No Country for Old Men the first time when I was 16, I think, right when it came out. And for me, at least, it was one of the first movies that was, it kind of had its foot in both worlds uh, with both worlds being like more conventional cinema that I was used to, but also it did some very subversive things that I wasn't used to. And that, in that sense, it really was a movie that got me interested in story structure, I think. Yeah. Or at least in why and how movies divert from traditional structures and what that means. And I don't know, it was a movie that intrigued me, but at the same time, it wasn't. It wasn't alienating as some other art house movies can be when you have no experience with art house movies. So it was a nice, for me at least, it was this nice gateway movie into more abstract or just non-conventional forms of uh, cinema, which yeah. that's what really made it interesting to me at the time, at least. Uh, I think I watched it two or three times, not too long after each other. I didn't revisit it until last week. So that's more than 10 years later. Yeah. Is that it's, correct? It had been a while yeah. for me as well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was fun. It was definitely, I think it still holds up very well. It's just, uh, it, it's still very, I, I think now it feels more existential almost than it did back then. Yes. I, to me, at least it was this, uh, back in the day, it was just an unconventional Western-ish type story. But now it feels much more subdued in some ways, but also more evocative in others like it's more the first time i saw it i i, I connected more to like louis moss's character whereas now i feel like i'm watching it as tommy lee jones's character like more reflective right. and more more like wondering what it was all about and what the meaning is and so yeah i think that there's still to this day there's some interesting themes to dig into and um it's just a yeah a really well-crafted story it still is and has some uh, compelling characters that uh, I'm sure we're going to discuss and lots of yeah. stuff that's worth uh, watching this movie for. Yeah. I also had a similar experience of revisiting this and enjoying it the first time, but coming back to it and I think mm -hmm. discovering more depth there than at least I perceived the first time or, or maybe just a shift in perspective that's happened because I've watched more film mm -hmm. that is in this similar way, kind of ambiguous and subversive narratively, or I've just changed as a person. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Like perhaps the films that I've watched since I first watched No Country for Old Men have also changed me. And then, hmm. you know, we have this circular feedback loop or whatever. But I do remember this being a movie that 
stuck out to me as being that like ambiguity of the ending and the they're they're very much playing with this dissatisfaction that in terms of resolving the conflict and how the story plays out structurally like it's skipping a beat at the end mm. and doing that on purpose to kind of leave you with this like feeling of unresolved tension i remember this movie being one of the first movies i watched that really did that in a very effective way and where i mm -hmm. i didn't dislike it i kind of understood why that was happening and what point that played in the movie uh, i've seen a lot of movies that do similar things since then but I think it was an interesting introduction into that kind of mode of storytelling where it's like, we're going to be sort of postmodern in how we like mm -hmm. subvert this narrative, but it's, it didn't feel like just bad storytelling. It felt like it had a purpose and now revisiting it and knowing where it's going. And there is so much that still holds your attention and makes it very entertaining on a conventional mm -hmm. level. I think there's characters that are really interesting and entertaining. The Coen brothers are so good at writing little bit parts or crafting a character that is just fun to look at on screen. Mm -hmm. And we get a lot of that. But then there's also beautiful cinematography from Roger Deakins and just like pure suspense. It really stood out to mm -hmm. me. There's like a set piece at the beginning of it, not the beginning, in the middle of this movie that has almost no score it's just a long, extended, protracted kind of chase sequence. I'm thinking specifically of like from the moment when Llewellyn shows up at the hotel mm. until kind of there's a sequence there that until that's resolved is so tense. Yeah. Even knowing exactly what was going to happen, I was on edge watching it. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's just masterfully crafted in terms of how the, the, the filmmaking kind of draws you in and into yeah. the suspense of those moments. And so I think that that helps propel it and helps make it feel more palatable. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, mm -hmm. like it, it it has that kind of art house subversion of narrative. Yeah. But it also is an exciting, suspenseful kind of neo-Western. It's, it's, it's just a, an almost fun like cat and mouse game between yeah. the main character, Lewin Maas, and Anton Shigurg, who's hunting him. Speaking to the suspense, it does that annoyingly effective thing where you basically have a timer and then it goes like five, four, three, and then, <laughs> but then it, it slows, it shows the last seconds, but then it kind of slows time down where, so it feels like you're like the main character is just running out of time, but then, oh yeah. no, he's, he, he just got out. Yeah. I think that's the, the part where he's, he's fixing like the, he has the, the money stashed in the vent. And Anton Shigurg, he's driving up to the motel and he's pulling like the, the tent poles together to get out his bag. And then it looks like he's going to be too late. And like, there's no way, no way he has enough time to fix it before Anton shows up. But then, you know, that's, that's where the movie does its time trickery. Where it's, yes, yeah. It's, you know, it's unrealistic because there's no way he's going to make it. But it's only because of movie magic that he does. And it's annoying, but it, it somehow it works really well. <laughs> it works. It works. Yeah. <laughs> This episode of Cinema of Meaning is brought to you by MUBI. MUBI is an online hand-curated streaming cinema with exceptional movies from all around the world, and it's available all around the world. 
Mubi is like having your own personal online film festival. They carefully pick and feature a brand new movie every day for you to watch with an explanation of why it's significant and worth checking out. Mubi is a great place to go just to discover something new and interesting to watch. That's what really sets it apart from other streaming services for me. Recently, I watched We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is a dark but boldly directed fascinating movie by Lynn Ramsey that stars Tilda Swinton. The use of color and sound in this movie is amazing. You can check that out on Mubi in the U.S. or you can explore their library wherever you are in the world for free when you sign up for an extended 30-day free trial by using our code. Just go to Mubi.com slash cinema of meaning or click the link in the description below. That's M-U-B-I.com slash cinema of meaning. Maybe we should talk a little bit about what it's about, and then we can dive into yeah. kind of also on top of everything we are already mentioned, there is this undercurrent that really the film opens with. It doesn't conceal its sort of me meditative philosophical musings either. It kind of wears mm -hmm. those right on its sleeve. I'm sure we're going to get into that, but we can lay the groundwork for sort of the plot that's going on and then and then talk about kind of the thematic elements that it's directly exploring through this story. Mm -hmm. The opening has a montage of different parts of Texas. There's some voiceover from a sheriff. And then we see Llewellyn. Uh, we're introduced to a different character who is hunting. Mm -hmm. And he stumbles upon some money. Or he stumbles upon a, a gang cartel drug dispute, a deal gone bad or something like that. Yeah. And there's a bunch of dead bodies and cars in, out in the desert. And he finds some money and he takes it. This kind of sets mm -hmm. in motion the rest of the plot. So Llewellyn yeah. finds this money and takes it. And then you have Anton Shakur, who is chasing him. And then you have the Mexicans, the Mexican cartel, who are also chasing Llewellyn. Mm -hmm. And then you have a third guy who is chasing Llewellyn and also maybe Shakur. So you have multiple people. That was the Woody Harrelson character, right? The Woody Harrelson character. Yeah. And then you have the Tommy Lee Jones character, who is the sheriff, who is also kind of aware of what's going on and mm -hmm. is sort of trying to piece all this together and, and see what's happening. Yeah. So it's this very like, oh, there's layers of cat and mouse and chasing. Mm -hmm. But the main the main line we follow is, is Llewellyn on the run. Shigur chasing him and then the sheriff kind of chasing both of them on on hmm, the yeah. tail. But maybe the central character is Anton Shigur himself. Yeah, I think so too. Yet yeah, I'm still not sure how he like I think I have an understanding of what his character represents metaphorically, but I at least on my maybe I didn't ask close attention as I should have, but I wasn't sure how exactly he fits into the actual plot of the movie like because he arrives at the crime scene with two other guys who he then ends up killing and then he kind of goes off on his own mm -hmm. but i wasn't sure was he hired to get the money and then kind of went all joker and decided <laughs> right. i'm gonna burn it all down or i'm not sure is that made any clearer did i miss something there or i'm also not sure which party he's working for exactly mm -hmm. because he doesn't seem to be working in concert with the Mexican cartel or the Woody Harrelson character who is hired by this yeah. anonymous business guy. I think it's it's structured kind of intentionally so that there's just forces at play 
outside of the vision of the film and specifically mm. the sheriff and Llewellyn, whose perspective we kind of come into the story through. And a big theme that's played out, at least through kind of the sheriff's perspective and his voiceover and dialogue, is this feeling of change and sort of a moral turning where the sheriff is feeling like he's encountering a world that he doesn't understand, where there's kind of a loss of logic to it and just evil yeah. kind of happens. I do think there's ambiguity there, perhaps on purpose, where it's just like, I mean, we come in at the beginning where Llewellyn takes the money, but the deal has already gone bad. You know, Shigur is it already feels like he's on the road. I think that mm -hmm. scene where he strangles the police officer happens even before Llewellyn takes the money. I don't remember. Do you remember? Yeah, he seems to be arrested for some other issue unrelated to the rest of the plot of the movie. But yeah, yeah I'm not sure if it, that signifies anything or was just the, the, the introduction to his character. But yeah, strange, strange. We don't really know who or what mm -hmm. he is. You have a pretty good idea of what he represents. I think that mm -hmm. that lack of like concrete understanding of where he's coming from or who he's working for plays into that feeling that he's almost more of this like metaphysical mm -hmm. symbolic force than than just like hitman i think he's described as a ghost somewhere at some point in the movie yeah but i that's a thing that the coen brothers have done before right i think oh brother where art thou for example yeah. also has this kind of menacing evil villain that's just seems to be like pure evil that's not the way they depict tend to depict villainous characters are just not as these misunderstood or empathetic characters but they really are something that is beyond our or tends to be beyond our understanding and right beyond any kind of relatability really which is fascinating but also you know yeah deliberately alienating and quite frightening i guess in that uh in that sense. To me, the main, one of the main themes that's being explored here is this idea of kind of determine, determinism, predestination. One of the famous scenes from the movie is a moment where we're, as we're kind of introduced to just how screwed up and sort of psychopathic the Shigur character is, is this moment where he comes into the gas station and mm. He sort of places the life of the gas station attendant on a coin flip. Cormac McCarthy's dialogue really comes through in a lot of places in this movie, mm -hmm. uh, the author of the book that it was based on. And there's a lot of lines in here that are just like really interesting and fun on their on their own mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I like how the, the gas attendant is like, I need to know what I stand to win or... I didn't put nothing up. And he, Anton Shigurk, he replies, yes, you did. You've been putting yeah. it up your whole life. You just didn't know. He also says something about like, I got here the same way the coin did. That's in the final scene, right? That he, oh, is that is that in the final? Yeah. Okay. I think in this one, this is where he says, he, uh, he goes on to ask, uh, or to ask, uh, you know, what date is on this coin? And the gas station guy is like, no. And then he replies, uh, 1958, it's been traveling 22 years to get here and now it's here and it's either heads or tails and you have to say it call it yeah and he stands to win everything which is a little bit of a misnomer i think <laughs> it's probably more accurate to say he stands to lose 
<laughs> to lose <laughs> everything. It's a it's it's an interesting game that he sets up, and it kind of sets up the theme that the movie is exploring this tension, mm-hmm. which comes back at the end of Shigur is treating kind of the world as this deterministic space where things mm. happen, there's cause and effect. And that relates very closely to how the movie feels is structured. Like we watch a lot. It's very procedural. We see this thing happen and then this thing happens. And then mm-hmm. because of that, this thing happens. There's long stretches where there's not a lot of dialogue and we just see characters kind of doing what they need to do to get from one moment to the next and trying to just play out the the chase or the investigation mm. or yeah, whatever yeah. it is. And so the whole movie has this feeling of just process of cause and effect of sort of physics. I was thinking when I was trying to understand why this movie is entertaining, even though it just feels like kind of things playing out in a way mm. that you know they're going to happen. I was thinking, I don't know, when I was a kid, we would go to these science museums mm-hmm. in America and they would have, or sometimes you would see them at like a mall or something. There would be these big things and they're a big like plastic vortex and you can put a coin in a slot and the coin goes in and it just like rolls around and it rolls, it like spins on its edge towards mm-hmm. the center and it eventually drops into a hole and you can put multiple coins in and they'll like both go around together. And I was thinking about, for some reason, I was thinking about that in relation to this movie and about the fact that for some reason, it's in those scenarios, it's fun to just watch physics play out. Like, you know exactly oh, what's yeah. going to happen. You know, the coin is going to drop down in and spin around and you know, <laughs> it's going to drop into the hole. And as it gets closer, it just speeds up, mm-hmm. but it's mesmerizing for whatever reason, even though there's no yeah. inherent drama in it. Mm, yeah. Or, or there is, I don't know, maybe there is. Maybe it feels like the coin the is... Drama or physics, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's also just from a more storytelling perspective. It's just, at least that's something I noticed watching it now, is that it's pretty cleverly written too. Like it doesn't feel like the characters are making stupid mistakes or that they're doing right. like contrived things to end to force a conflict. Like it always feels like everyone is at the top of their game. Like even with uh Llewellyn, you can kind of argue like, oh maybe, maybe not take the money. But he does he doesn't seem like some down on his luck uh idiot who stumbles upon this cash and stupidly takes it like he seems he plans it all out he anticipates the consequences he yeah tries to get everything into place as best as he can like and then you know he you you quickly come to learn like he's experienced like he's not uh, a stranger to conflict and violence he knows how to hide himself and to he knows when there's a risk involved like when he goes back to the motel and he senses that something's wrong like he drives around and he goes to someplace else like he never it never feels like anyone is doing something truly reckless yeah which kind of adds to the whole suspense of it all it you you feel like you're identifying with everyone who's making the smartest possible mistake of a uh, smartest possible choice which in a way makes it only more exciting when you're anticipating how these forces will eventually collide with each other because you're genuinely wondering okay where's who's gonna drop the ball and what's gonna happen or how's it gonna happen yeah so yeah that's something that i i just really appreciated this time around and probably also when i watched it the first time even though i wasn't sure exactly why i enjoyed it so much back then right yeah to that point both 
Shiger and Llewellyn kind of seem to have a similar attitude where like, even if you could argue, oh, he shouldn't have taken the money or whatever, it, Llewellyn seems to have this attitude of like, well, I did. And so now this is this is mm -hmm. the path I have to take. He does. He never questions that. It's always just this is what happened. And so now I need to do this. And yeah, and they're they're all all three factors, the sheriff, the Shiger and and Llewellyn are all very good at what they're doing like mm -hmm. you you do genuinely feel like either of them could come out on top which yeah. i think makes how the movie actually ends very interesting but we'll save we'll save that for yeah. a little bit later but i guess going back to something that i wanted to mention with that coin scene is mm -hmm. this dichotomy that's set up between fate or deterministic predestination, fate, determinism. And Shigur is trying to force this issue of like the coin has decided, but yet there's mm -hmm. also this little tiny element of choice or the illusion of choice in making the other person call the coin where there's this choice of do you call heads or tails? And in some way that has this element of placing their fate in their hands or, but there's also the question that comes into play at the end that we'll talk about eventually is can you choose just to not play the game mm. at all? And so, yeah, there's a very concise, I think, setup within that moment of kind of the ideas that the that the movie yeah. is trying to, to to explore. Yeah, it's interesting because it, if you look at it literally, the whole coin scene is obviously kind of cruel and a non-choice, really, because you know, right? Anton he presents it as if you as if this is fate and you have to pick otherwise you're gonna die but from a logical point of view you know that's that's not the real choice like this it's not actual fate that's presenting you with this choice it's another dude standing in front of you who's right. in, in that sense it's just like you're giving into his perverted sense of giving his victims a choice like yes it, yeah it kind of it, it changes the, the dynamic a little bit but I, I i think you're meant to look at it as more metaphorically because his whole character as we already talked about clearly functions as this more metaphorical figure in that sense it actually the coin game kind of reminded me of the chess game in the seventh seal which yeah yeah uh where you have this crusader playing against death itself which is a more literal metaphorical representation of turning the issues of life into or the existential issues of life into a game and how we play that game kind of reveals something about how we then approach life as well and in that sense i think no country for all men also talks or, or says something about the way we tend to act in the face of fate or you know greater circumstances beyond our control or beyond our comprehension even. I think in that sense, it seems to argue that because you have basically, you know, you have two choices, but you have like three outcomes. You, so you have, you choose either to call it or not to call it. Not calling it leads to death. But if you call it, you have two outcomes where you either win and you walk away with your life or you lose and you also end in death. So you have of the three outcomes, only one results in life. But for that, the necessary condition is that you do play the game. So it seems to argue that not playing is, by definition, uh, equal to losing. Right. Yeah. What that means beyond that, I'm not exactly sure, but that's, that's kind of the dynamics that it presents. The question there is kind of like actual fate would be like this element beyond man. Hmm. 
humans in a sense. And Shigur presenting, call the coin, the coin decides whether you live or die, is this false, it's like a false determinism. You choosing to play the game might be necessary in order to live, but only because he's constructing this like world in which those are the rules. He's trying to decide the rules, uh, which is contrary, I think, to the actual idea of true fate or true determinism, which would be like mm. your choice doesn't even actually enter into it. So and I do think I do think the movie is is ultimately kind of messing around with those those ideas because Shigur as a character kind of gets undercut by the end. Part of the brilliance of the movie is that I think it's not just slipping into this overly simplified like, oh, here's a conflict between fate and free will and which one of those is going to win. It's much messier than that. That's an element of it that I really appreciate. Yeah, it might also be why the movie begins with a pretty strong thematic proposition in a way. So the last part of the opening monologue is Tommy Lee Jones's character saying, the crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job, but I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He'd have to say, okay, I'll be part of this world. I do really love that last bit there. Yeah. So yeah, that, that seems to me like a clear sort of thesis on... You know, he literally says to be part of this world is in part to surrender yourself to something that you don't understand, to meddle in forces beyond your control and beyond your understanding. But then at the very end, when we, when you're supposedly getting the, like the closing monologue or the closing statement, as it were, it, he doesn't really say anything that makes sense in a direct or literal way because he, he basically just describes a dream he had or two dreams, actually which really baffled me the first time I watched it. It was like, to me, that there was nothing more surprising in that movie than the <laughs> uh, sudden cut to black after he says, yes. then I woke up. But yeah, I think the dreams at the end, I'm not sure what to make of the first one or why there is even the first one that he describes. He says, uh, he talks about meeting his dad in town somewhere. He's got, he, he's going to give me some money. I think I lost it. Might be a vague reference to the plot as a whole, but... I'm not sure. But then in the second one, he describes being this kind of old timey cowboy sheriff-ish figure riding with his dad who is, uh, and they're going through this mountain pass through the dark. And his dad is the one who has this light fire in a horn, he describes it. And then he sort of moves, his dad goes ahead and he, or the Tommy Lee Jones characters, he imagines he's going to go ahead and make a fire somewhere. And that whenever he would arrive, his dad would be there and all would be fine. But then you know, that's when he wakes up. That actual moment doesn't come. So, Happen. Yeah. yeah. For years, I didn't know what, what <laughs> that scene meant. But <laughs> I'm not sure you're, you're supposed to add a too specific of a meaning to it. I like that it's, you know, dreams in general are, are always, even if they relate to some part of our unconscious that we're struggling with, it, there's always an, this big element of randomness that I kind of fascinates me. Yeah. And which I think also applies here. So... I'm not trying to add too much of a literal allegorical meaning, so to say, to it, but it does kind of invoke that feeling of him hoping there'll be some guiding light ahead that's going to 
resolve everything but then every time you're about to reach it you know you wake up from the dream and yeah it's never quite there that functions well as sort of a microcosm for the film in a sense too where often mm -hmm. you know as viewers we might hope for some kind of fate or light or hope outside of the framework of what we see just happening on screen of kind of what i think Shigur is trying to represent or thinks he represents or does represent which is just like mm. oh i'm i'm just fate playing things out and you stepped in it so now you die is kind of the the vibe i get there carla jean at the end in choosing not to call it i think is kind of to me that's that's also that little element of faith of like i'm not mm. going to try to take my fate into my hands i'm going to have this like little kernel of faith that fate in the the fate beyond Shigur or whatever. There's different ways of interpreting that, but that's how that's yeah. how it kind of it kind of feels to me. Like she's appealing to a force beyond Shigur, that's what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that that idea that idea is kind of in the in the film a little bit in other ways too. There's that line about I forget who says it, but somebody says, you might even say he has principles, talking about Shigur say, says, you um, might even yeah. say he has principles. I think it's Woody Harrelson's character that transcend mm -hmm. drugs or money or any of that. They allude towards this idea that he's playing out some kind of what he sees as some kind of moralistic force yeah. of fate beyond just, oh, I'm I'm recovering this money for, you know, my team mm -hmm. or whatever. And that's, that's why he shows up at Carly Jean's in the first place, right? Because right. the story's yeah pretty much over but it's only because Llewellyn he made a bad choice way before he died and so now Anton is kind of still following up on him even though yes. Llewellyn is already dead and the money is either recovered at that point or clearly lost forever but um, yeah he, he only seems to be there for just out of it some kind of self-contrived uh, principle that has no bearing on the actual outcome of the the reason he was in the story for the first place which yeah yeah i guess that says something about what his character is or the kind of principles that he at least thinks he holds on to but yeah you talked about the the cut to black after the dream and that being kind of this like shocking subversion i think the other mm -hmm. one for me that hits particularly hard is Llewellyn's death and how that happens where mm, I, I yeah. talked about it at the beginning you have this really extensive elaborate kind of set piece where I don't know how long it is in the film it's maybe 20 minutes it feels long because you're you're very on edge but Llewellyn is going to these different hotels and Shigur mm -hmm. is chasing him and he comes up to the door and they're they're like there's a couple near misses and they're having shootouts and for a long time you're really invested in this chase between them ultimately that doesn't resolve in the way that we want it to which would be one of them winning and getting to see one of them mm -hmm. win instead we just find Llewellyn dead with the sheriff with not a lot of fanfare and it turns out the cartel got to him and Shigur didn't and that move to me is the is another one that really undercuts kind of the idea that like Shigur is actually this arbiter of like fate that he's mm -hmm. kind of trying to be that but is a false like a false version of that in a sense because 
he is ultimately undercut by this sort of ultimate fate. Llewellyn does make a bad choice. He does make a choice by taking the money that will ultimately lead to his death, but not at the hand mm -hmm. of Shigur. Shigur isn't the one who who ultimately is like the arbiter of that. It's like, I don't know. I don't know if in the Cohen's mind, it's like God or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's some force out there that's like bigger than Shigur that that kind of is pulling the strings and orchestrating things. Yeah. You can kind of see that in the car crash at the end, I think, too. Yeah, but does he, did he survive that? He kind of walked away and it's left. Yeah, he he breaks his bone and, yeah. Ambiguous whether or not he's uh, going to uh, collapse or, or uh, yeah, collapse to his injuries or uh, yeah. recover from it. And uh, he's shown being wounded before and he kind of just recovers and moves on. Yeah. But maybe this one got him. Maybe that one got him. Ultimately, yeah. what takes him out is not the sheriff or Llewellyn or, you know, yeah. any of any of the forces that are like we're invested in within the film. Mm -hmm. It's just some random person who runs a stop sign or, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Red traffic light. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the the death of Llewellyn, that's that's the second after the, the ending, the, the second big subversive moment that really got to me when I first watched it. I was like, wait, is, is that... Is that the main character? Is he, is he <laughs> dead, dead on the floor? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I think I actually ended up rewinding the movie. Like, did, yeah. Because did, did I miss something? Is did my DVD break or something? What what's going on here? It's not just what happens. It's the way they present that moment that mm -hmm. really, really like undercuts any like satisfaction that Llewellyn mm -hmm. dying would traditionally have narratively within a, a movie like this. Yeah, it happens uh, off screen. Yeah, uh, we don't because I think it's the the sheriff who drives up to the uh, motel and he just sees the the cartel Mexicans leaving and that yeah he kind of walks onto the scene and then it's everything's already over and yeah. Llewellyn is already dead and there's there's not even like a last gasp of breath or like a tell Carla Gina lover or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like at that point. He's just like meat. Like he's just a just a corpse. And that to me, when I first watched it, that was the most sobering moment, I guess, for me. Like, oh, even this, even a main character can just randomly die. Like he's an extra in his own movie, almost, or like a like a henchman in the in one of those Austin Powers movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which uh, I both didn't like it at first, as well as was intrigued by it and but i think it thematically it's very effective at just undercutting both the sense of self-importance that llewellyn has in his thinking like oh i'm a vietnam vet like i can fix this i can take on the cartel i can take on yeah. Sigurk, i can wiggle my way out of this but it's, it's also kind of undercutting the uh, audience's perception or as we tend to identify with the main character and so we tend to anticipate some kind of resolution for us through the main character, which in this case doesn't really happen, which yeah. again confirms that, you know, we are just sort of submissive to these greater forces or yeah. God or whatever uh, you want to call it in this movie. It undercuts our expectations. It undercuts Shigur as well, who, who has had this attitude of, you know, he kills the Woody. The Woody Harrelson character knows where the money is, and Shigur kills him because he's so sure that it's going to be brought to him by... Oh, yeah. Who did he refer to at that moment? Did he expect Llewellyn to come and deliver it at his feet, or was he... 
I th expecting. I'm pretty sure it was Lu Llewellyn. Yeah, because yeah, at that point he was threatening Carla Jean and her mom, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we the money just disappears. We don't know who ends up with it. Yeah. The, presumably maybe the Mexican cartel, maybe Shigur got it. I, we don't, we don't, we just see that it, it's by the time the sheriff shows up and goes looking for it, it's gone from the, the hotel that, that yeah. Llewellyn dies in. Didn't, didn't Llewellyn throw it over the bridge to, on the, on the border somewhere or, or was it implied that he did something like that or? Yes, but then it's, in, but it's also implied that he gets, Bring, gets it back so he throws uh, it over yeah. there the the woody harrelson character finds it there so that's why mm. he knows where it is and he goes uh, and tells okay. shigur that he can or shigur captures woody harrelson's character he says i know where it is i can take you to it shigur's mm. like no kills him because he expects llewellyn to pick it up and bring it back mm. and then we have that shot of like there's the great open in the hotel and we can see that there's like scrape marks where it would have mm. been placed there and removed. So presumably yeah. Llewellyn did pick it back up and take it to the hotel, but then somebody took it out of there and we never we never really find out who did. Mm -hmm. But it is a horribly unsatisfying movie, <laughs> I think especially the first time you watch it, for those reasons. You know, you I don't think you're supposed to like that, that like <laughs> that like three-pronged punch of like Llewellyn dying with zero fanfare and then she Shigur just walking off down the street and never, uh, never knowing mm. what happens to him, never finding out what happens to the money. Even even the scene with Carla Jean, where we presume she doesn't call the 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 coin toss, and then mm -hmm. Shigur kills her. We don't even see that, so like we don't know what happens there or exactly how it happens. And then the sheriff just retires and tells a story of his dreams, and it cuts to black. It's like this series of cascading unresolved ambiguity that is mm -hmm. genuinely, I think, pretty, like I was unsatisfied and uncomfortable and that's also what you've described. Mm -hmm. But it touches that, it, it touches on that feeling that the sheriff is getting at with that last dream that you have when you have a dream like that where mm -hmm. you just wake up and then whatever the promise of this dream is, is like this unresolved narrative and you can't, you can't go back to sleep and find out what happens. It it just lingers there. Mm. Yeah. And that that feeling is closely related to this feeling of not understanding sort of the the what those forces are at play or not being able to control them. And so that that to me like is where the movie really succeeds is in kind of yeah. tapping into that feeling and connecting it to that that lack of understanding that feeling of not understanding or that lack of understanding that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. To, to what extent do you think um, that Tommy Lee Jones, the, the sheriff character, was actually the main character? Because we do begin and we right. end with him, even though he seems to be more of an observer during the, like, the, the middle part of the movie. He doesn't actually, he doesn't do anything as far as I can remember specific with regards to the whole conflict like he doesn't intervene he kind of he's he's kind of on the tail end of it kind of trying to piece it together but he doesn't actually set anything into motion or intervene in at, at any specific moment really 
there's that one moment where he is entering. He's about to enter the motel room and you see this shot of uh, Anton Shigurk kind of hiding yeah. in the shadows, but then it's revealed that he is not there, that the kind of the shot was like maybe in uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character's mind, that he was thinking that, right. oh, he could be there, could not be there. I do like uh, someone else on, uh, I think it was an old video essay on um, on the movie. I don't remember which one, but someone pointed out that uh, Tommy Lee Jones, he notices the the keyhole being punched out as uh, mm-hmm. as it happens with all the other locks. But then because the, the doorknob is in the dark and the light is coming from the inside, the round hole, it kind of resembles uh, because the, the doorknob is from made from copper. So the light that's reflected through it kind of takes on the shape of a, of a coin because it has that same golden yes. aura. And then you have Tommy Lee Jones. What's his name in the movie? Tom? At Tom Bell? Yeah. Anyways, the yeah. sheriff yeah. is... <laughs> you have him standing on the outside of the door and he's basically doing, or he's be basically the one who has to call it in that moment. Like, right. I, is he going to, is Anton Chigurh going to be there? Is it going to be like heads or is he gone? And am I safe? Is it tails or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And turns out he has, uh, uh, he turns out not to be there and he's fine. But, you know, again, that also means he doesn't really, that there's no interaction between him and everything else that seems to be going on. Yeah. That element of him calling it is also interesting when you place it in juxtaposition to the opening kind of thesis that that you read, where he talks about going out and encountering something and losing your soul because you encounter this thing mm-hmm. that, that you don't understand. I don't know what the, the implication <laughs> of that is necessarily, but in that moment... He's literally choosing to potentially, he ultimately doesn't, but he's choosing to possibly come face to face with yeah. that that thing. Because Shigur is kind of this representation, I think, of that dismal tide. I forget, I think one character calls it, or like that that e- that specific sort of nebulous, un not understandable evil mm-hmm. that seems like evil for evil's sake instead of for some kind of purpose is that Tommy Lee Jones is kind of talking about, I think is sort of what Anton Chigur represents, at least partially. And so that moment is where they would be coming face to face. And Tommy Lee Jones, in the context of thinking that, encountering that, looking that that thing in the face ca- might cost you your soul, is is flipping the coin with not only his life potentially, but also his, his yeah. soul somehow in his thinking. Mm-hmm. But it also seems to be like a necessary element in order to be like you have to call it or you reject yourself from this world because that's what the opening lines is like you. Right. He says he, the man who goes in and meets something that he doesn't understand, he has he is the one who puts his soul at hazard. He is the one who'd have to say, okay, I'll be part of this world. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's later there's another conversation between the sheriff and some other kind of like old timer dude who uh where the sheriff he kind of goes on about like oh back in the day things used to be simpler that's when it made sense and now everything's different but that argument is also kind of countered by this other dude who's uh this old man who's saying that he kind of recounts this story from 1909 or whatever like some way back in the day moment that was similarly senseless in yeah uh kind of to point out like okay what you're seeing today that's that's nothing new the world's always been like this which to me wasn't 
was interesting. The, the literal line, by the way, is uh, what you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. Yeah. That's vanity. Yeah. So that, to me at least, kind of reframed that initial thesis where it says like it's almost an becomes more of a moral imperative that you have to call it anyways. Like you to reject the call is to reject yourself from the world. And that in the end would be like an act of vanity because that's to say like, oh, maybe I don't understand this world as it is now. Maybe, you know, you're expecting something that is not for you to have. Like you're expecting some kind of understanding of the world that you'll never get. And so in that sense, it almost becomes like a moral imperative to say, okay, I'm going to call it and I'm risking, I'm going to put my soul at hazard, but for better or worse, I'm going to be part of the world. That yeah. to me is at least this time around what I got out of the movie the most. And which really for me kind of wraps up that whole existential layer. Yes. Yeah. It, it vaguely reminded me of the Tree of Life even where you have the Sean Penn character who's almost present in the background, mostly in the beginning and then again towards the end, like similarly to the sheriff. And then it's more of the in-between story that metaphorically signifies his journey from i don't understand this world i'm de detached from it disconnected and in the end he finds some kind of uh, reconnection or at least some kind of peace with being given what he is or being you know peace with the world as it is so to say yeah yeah he's the main character in the sense that that's the perspective of the film of the story Hmm. we kind of see it through his lens not necessarily at every moment because we obviously see yeah. literal events on screen that he doesn't but but kind of philosophically and the the perspective of the story comes through him and yeah ultimately he's the one who has an arc i don't think like shigur and basically all none of the other characters have a character arc they just kind of have this linear trajectory that they're all on but the sheriff does seem to have like decisions that he's making or I mean the other characters make decisions I guess but the, he's the one who's weighing this like moral conflict instead of just mm -hmm. staying to a specific principle you know even like yeah like Llewellyn every time he makes a decision it doesn't think it doesn't and same with Shigur it doesn't seem like they're really like sitting down and okay I'm gonna think over what are the implications of this they're just this is what I'm gonna do yeah you know they make a decision because yeah, like the whole the, the physics things that you right the physics thing that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. But the sheriff lies in contrast to that, where he seems to be weighing the implication of everything, mm. and I think that might position him more as you know the the heart of the film in a sense. Yeah, at least the, the he's kind of the the reflective uh, side yeah. of it all. You have these very mechanical pieces, and he is the one who's trying to figure out how it works and what that signifies the way it plays out or something like that. I hadn't really made that connection that that you had with that that kind of existentialism, hmm. existentialist thread, but I I see that there now that you talk about it and I think that's a hmm. uh that's a good point to highlight. I can I can see that in the middle. You can watch this movie and hmm. say I disagree. That's not what the world is like. You could you can say like it is all just predetermined or we do mm. have this very clear choice or God, it, there is a God that gives everything meaning and he'll make sure that Sh Anton Chigurh gets his due. Uh, and he, you know, God's 
pulling all the strings and Llewellyn dies because it's moral retribution for taking drug money mm-hmm. or like whatever, you you can kind of disagree with this feeling that the movie gives you that it's just like forces colliding together and then stuff happens because of that is kind of the feeling I think the movie captures. But you can also just kind of rest into an acceptance of not knowing which is sort of what the sheriff does, yeah, yeah. which is also a very existentialist maneuver of just kind of saying mm-hmm. there might there might be a light up ahead, like the father might be waiting down the path with the campfire. Mm-hmm. You you can even hope for that, but I woke up and so I don't know, and yeah, you know that's. <laughs> he, didn't he also at some point he mentions about that as he grew older he expected God to come into his life somehow. And then yes, yeah, yeah. he just didn't like he's he does really seem to be struggling with that lack of meaning. He just kind of assumed like things would fall into place as he got grew older and yeah. then it just didn't. And that is kind of the whole crux of the 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 thematic storyline there, I think. I do want to mention that it's I feel it's sometimes easy to say like, oh, it's so existential. It's about learning to accept what's not what you don't know, but it's not so much the theme itself that I find interesting here, but also the, just the way it's executed, the way it's yes. given form. I like that the Coen brothers still use this very compelling, very suspenseful cat and mouse game to kind of keep you in, keep your attention, keep you engaged. Uh, I love all the the secondary characters. You know, they they really seem to pick these you know strange Texas people with weathered faces. That, yeah really give a lot of texture and character to the world. And, uh, you know, a lot of them, they're just memorable in their own right. They're not even, they don't feel like extras. They feel like they've been deliberately picked and for these small, but not definitely not insignificant parts. So yeah, and and yeah, I think it it knows exactly when to, when to just hold your attention in a conventional sense and when to subvert it. You yeah. know, you've talked about the, the three prong assault on your expectations almost <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> which is it's just enough to to like and, and and with the little pieces of dialogue in between it's just enough to create like this compelling story while also one that intrigues you into kind of reflecting back on it on what exactly it meant and uh trying to search for like something deeper beneath the surface and yeah uh, for me at least it was a pretty rewarding exercise to do so and uh, yeah that's yeah uh but to me made this movie still worth watching today i agree there's there's a lot of movies that try to do that thing it's it's really easy to say it's not it's it's unsatisfying and that's because Mm -hmm. life is unsatisfying it's like you know oh it's supposed (laughs) to be it's supposed to be bad but it's that's not what this this movie is doing or this movie is just doing that actually really well doing Mm -hmm. it in a way that is ultimately unsatisfying in how it it creates a feeling of un, of dissatisfaction with the narrative. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think you're absolutely correct in saying that that theme is one that I think a lot of films try to explore, but fi- very few do interestingly or effectively as mm-hmm. as this one does. And yeah, I'll add to everything that you mentioned the performance, especially from Tommy Lee Jones, mm. is really captivating to me. And then also, you know, this is the benefit of adapting material from a really great author like Cormac McCarthy. But just I love a movie that dialogue isn't everything in a film. There's so much 
so much else going on in a movie, but there's so many pieces of just beautiful dialogue that are so so well performed, especially from the sheriff in this in this movie that I really love. There's he has that kind of like he has a very specific form of wit hmm. in a lot of his lines that I've only ever experienced in real life from guys like that that I would have met growing up who were just like old, crusty, kind of weathered southern guys. Yeah. <laughs> and they just had this like their whole being moved kind of slowly, but their 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 brain was so sharp. sharp. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love this character because mm -hmm. there's not many like him in in yeah. film. If there's one modern follow up, I would maybe say it's uh, Hell or High Water, which kind of reminded me, at least in terms of yeah, uh, like vibe. I don't think it has the same exact themes going on, but it does has that same kind of rugged look at the American South, it is, yeah, Midwest, yeah. kind of the Texas region. Texas is kind of its own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Texas is kind of its own thing. No, yeah, that's a, that's another good one. I haven't, I haven't watched that one in a while, but it also mm -hmm. captures that. I think it has one of the same, the, the actress that works as a waitress in a restaurant that has that famous line with like what don't you want when she's trying to serve the the sheriff in hell or high water i think that's the same actress that played the motel receptionist oh nice yeah i haven't checked it but she she kind of looked like it anyways would be funny though there is some little streak of commentary on like money and capitalism as a as a source of some of this kind of evil that's happening you know it is money that sets the whole thing in motion there's this kind of symbolism of the coin there's various things uh adam Naiman in his essay in his cohen brothers book talks a lot about that uh and kind of lays some of that out but i don't i don't know if i ha know enough of the pieces to really put that together and i mean mm. there's a that's just kind of a theme that runs through a lot of a lot of movies that kind of explore a lot of movies that I would class as kind of postmodern in the sense that they're kind of exploring subverting modern narratives, which I think this movie is, is doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that might be more clearer in a movie like Hello High Water, which focuses yeah. more on the poverty that's present in that, yeah. that world, so to say, and also plays more into the motives of the characters that we have there the bank robbers who i'm not sure exactly what the plot was they they had to reef like pay off a loan or something or to yeah, prevent like the that. bank from taking a house or something like it's clearly like maybe a before and after financial crisis movie right but i think that's that's a nice double feature if you in case you have yeah you want to rewatch uh no country for old man and you want to kind of keep that vibe going with something newer then uh that's a nice uh might be a nice combo yeah Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash cinema of meaning. When you join our Patreon, you get access to our Discord community where you can chat with other listeners and us about episodes. You'll know what we're watching in the future so that you can watch with us. You can also listen to our bonus episodes on Nebula. We have a monthly episode where we cover an additional movie every month. We've talked about Drive, Primer, 2001 A Space Odyssey, a whole bunch of movies at this point. You can check those all out on Nebula for Nebula listeners. 
The best way to get that is with the Curiosity Stream bundle. If you don't have that, go to curiositystream.com/cinemaofmeaning. Check out the links in the description below. You also get ad-free and early access to the regular episodes when you listen on Nebula, so that's a pretty good deal. So thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next week.